This is the Urban Political, the podcast on urban theory, research, and activism. So, welcome to this week's episode of Urban Political.、Uh, we're talking to Margaret Cohn from the University of Toronto、uh, in relation to her recent book.、Uh, we want to discuss themes of urban solidarities,、uh, the commons. And the politics of moving beyond the COVID nineteen crisis. Before we do that,、um, Margaret, would you like to tell us a little bit more about yourself and your work and your fields of specialization? Yes. First of all, thank you very much for inviting me to join you on this podcast. So my background is in the field of political science. I received my PhD from Cornell in political science, and my specialty is in the area of political theory. I would characterize my training as in the area of critical theory, and when I say critical theory, what I have in mind here is the tradition influenced by the Frankfurt School. I see the critical theory tradition as having three main dimensions to it. The first one is an orientation towards emancipation. That sounds a little bit like an old-timey word, but I think it also signals the normativity of the critical theory tradition. But the critical theory tradition also engages in a meaningful way in empirical work, and I think that's one thing that is somewhat distinctive about my approach within political theory. It is very much a hybrid approach. And the third character is characteristic of the critical theory tradition that I would say has influenced my work is the influence of continental philosophy. So both Marx and Freud had a huge impact on the Frankfurt School. And to this day, I feel like the themes of political economy and psychoanalysis are very important in understanding politics and power. Excellent.、Um, so, thinking before we get really into 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 your book,、uh, your most recent book,、uh, "The Death and Life of the Urban Commonwealth," which is a fantastic book,、um, tell us a little bit about how、uh, you've、uh, experienced the COVID nineteen、uh, situation thus far. Well, luckily, Canada, where I live, has not been particularly hard hit, at least in comparison to the United States. So I feel like I have not been as hard hit as some other colleagues. I had spent my sabbatical in Florence last year, and certainly was very connected with、um, what was going on in Italy. Nevertheless, it has been certainly a kind of very challenging time. I have two teenage sons, and so it is somewhat. Difficult to all be together in the house.、Um, one thing that has really made a big positive impact for me during the past few weeks is the possibility of visiting our cabin in the countryside. Since the government loosened restrictions, I've been able to come up here and take long walks in nature, and I feel like that's been very beneficial for my mental health, and has also been something that I've been thinking about in relations relationship to cities and public space and. The need for access to nature. Let's start talking about the main arguments of your recent book, "The Death and Life of the Urban Commonwealth." Could you start telling us a little bit about the background and impulse for the book? Okay, to start with the background, I think my interest in this topic emerged directly out of my experience with the built environment around me. After I moved to the city of Toronto, so I ended up moving to a neighborhood that one might characterize as a gentrifying neighborhood. The median income was significantly below the median income for the census metropolitan area as a whole.
And as a relatively high income earner in a low income area, I was a gentrifier. Yet in the literature and urban studies, there is a great deal of criticism of gentrification. And so I posed the question to myself, what exactly is wrong with gentrification? So much of my research is motivated by just reflections on the world around me and puzzles that we confront in our daily lives as urban citizens. So as I thought about this problem, I identified five different harms of gentrification, displacement, replacement, the loss of community control, polarization, and homogenization. And I examined whether each of these should be construed as harms, and if so, why. And one of the things that I ended up drawing on in this first piece that ended up really being the foundation for the book as a whole is the theory of luck egalitarianism. So this is a philosophical theory that distinguishes between, on the one hand, circumstances that are produced by our choices, and on the other hand, those that are created by social structures that we don't control, the sense being that society is more responsible for the consequences of those structures. So I think gentrification is really like an excellent example for thinking about the problem of structural injustice. But at the same time, I came to feel like there were significant limitations to a theory like luck egalitarianism. Because ultimately, when we look at gentrification, we really only see the harm of people who already had something like tenancy uh, in a urban neighborhood that they come to lose. But what about all the other people outside who don't have access to the city? Let's say recent immigrants who are living in the inner suburbs of a city like Toronto, say in Scarborough, who would like to have access, um, but were never able to live in those neighborhoods. So I thought a broader framework was, was necessary. And so in the course of my research, I came to discover a theory called solidarism. Solidarism is a pretty obscure theory. It was very influential in the late 19th century, however, in France. The solidarists were a group of radical Republicans who briefly were the governing party in the Third Republic in France. And they emphasized the idea that we are interdependent and that we create social wealth collectively. And this generates a kind of entitlement to a share of that social wealth. And so as I delve deeper into this theory, which was in part also a response to the challenges of urbanization at the time, I came to think that it provided a much more rich, comprehensive, and also rhetorically persuasive way of understanding urban inequality. And so that came to be the central theme then of the book. There's a chapter that explains solidarism in a much more detail. And then I also apply it to a range of other urban problems or urban questions. There's a chapter about the right to public transit. There's a chapter about the privatization of public space. And I also discuss public housing and the clearance of informal settlements. Okay, great. Let's see maybe about how this idea of solidarism relates to Lefebvrean notions of, of the right to the city and um, maybe also uh, urban society uh, in general, something that we, would, we are also eager to explore in our current podcast series, which, is, which has the subtitle Advancing Urban Society. So, Could you elaborate a bit on how, how that relationship between solidarism and Lefebvre's thinking could be construed? Well, I had been familiar with Lefebvre's theory of the right to the city for quite a while, but 
I was under the impression that it was used very broadly and that it was sometimes hard to determine exactly what it entailed. And one of the things that I found very exciting about discovering solidarism was that it provided a way for me to understand and more deeply appreciate something like the right to the city, to make it sort of more concrete and to provide a kind of complex normative frame to justify it and explain it to others. So uh, I certainly wouldn't claim that solidarism is somehow the truth of Lefebvre's right to the city. I think solidarism is much more statist and Lefebvre has a more uh, decentralized kind of anarchist understanding. Uh, yet I feel like insofar as the concept came to have a life as its, of its own, solidarism is very useful in thinking about what it could mean. So just to provide like a little bit more background on what I mean by solidarism, um, the solidarists were very influenced by Durkheim and his theory of the division of labor. And so they started off by emphasizing the facticity of interdependence. This can just mean the interdependence of the division of labor. But like I said, they were very interested in cities and talked about the need for urban infrastructure. So urban life generates all these, what we might call positive externalities, this cultural um, uh, depth and breadth and economic opportunity and all sorts of aesthetic pleasure. And yet there's also attached to that what we might call negative externalities. So this could be pollution and traffic. And one of the things they did mention also was the possibility of disease and of um, the kinds of just exposure to various like stresses and strains that come from urban life. And so solidarism was a way of saying that we should reallocate some of the wealth that is generated through urban life and through the division of labor and use it to try and solve these externalities, these negative externalities. So one way of doing that was to, let's say, uh, pay for sewer systems or to provide mutual aid societies that would pay for people's lost wages when they were sick due to work accidents and to develop public transit and public parks and things that would um, be a form of compensation for some of the stresses of urban life. I think one of the um, really interesting aspects of your book is that I mean, you are obviously a political theorist and uh, <clears throat> you argue in theoretical terms, but in the book you really try to uh, think through these issues in relation to governing the city uh, in relation to these specific policy areas. I think you, transit being one, uh, gentrification, housing being another. Um, how do we get from uh, solidarism to the urban commonwealth? And could you say a little bit more about what that means in terms of government? You already mentioned that um, there's a kind of state, um, implicit statism to it. Um, but could you, could you expand on that a little bit, please? Mm -hmm. So the idea of the Commonwealth is very literal in my book, and I think it's literal for the solidarists, in that we make wealth together. And because of the division of labor, we really have no idea who contributed what. We can't disentangle it. It's impossible. It's not a scientific problem. It's not a mathematical problem. So ultimately, then, it's like a political or a moral problem. And so... Once you recognize that, then collectively you have to engage in a project of democratic deliberation 
about who should get what. The market is not going to magically decide this for us. It's not going to solve all our problems. And then that process of deliberation is difficult, and that's why there is this status dimension to it. It has to be structured. It has to be institutionalized in some way, and it has to be regulated because the power of capital is very vast, and it's not going to self-regulate. Therefore, you need to create an institution that has sufficient power in order to hold capital accountable. So this was a big debate in the 19th century because, of course, the socialist and communist parties thought of the state as, you know, the executive committee of the ruling class. And so there was some disagreement about whether or not the state could really act as a neutral arbiter of different conflicting interests. But I think, you know, now in a era of social democracy or post-social democracy, where the debate is between a kind of new liberal ideology and hopefully a resurgent social democracy, these solidarist ideas provide a kind of philosophical justification for a state that can limit the excesses of capital and can ensure a more just distribution of what we have collectively produced. You asked me to also speak to how this could be applied to thinking about specific urban problems. And after completing the book, I wrote a short new piece for the journal Perspectives on Politics focused on public parks because I felt that was not sufficiently developed in the book. And I think this is an area where we can see like an application of this uh, set of ideas to a very concrete problem. So the piece was originally titled, Why Should Parks Be Public? And at first, this might seem like kind of an unnecessary question because most people pretty much agree that it's legitimate to have public provision of parks. But when you dig a little deeper, it is actually still quite contested. I started thinking about this question at the time when Donald Trump had proposed to privatize vast swaths of these national monument lands, so essentially like parklands in the western part of the United States and open them up to resource development to oil drilling. And there were other controversies going on all over the country. There was one in New Jersey at Liberty State Park where there was a proposal to build a 500-slip marina for mega yachts that would block views of the Statue of Liberty from this public park. And so I realized that, you know, the degree of publicness is still very much contested and at stake. And so I developed this idea of uh, the compensation for negative externalities of urbanization to justify a kind of really generous funding of, of public parks and emphasize not only is it a matter of redistributive justice, but that parks are a kind of place where we can encounter one another as equals and as citizens. Uh, said in that kind of very brief way, it might sound a little bit utopian or nostalgic and that's something I discuss. I do see parks also as sites of like contestation, and it's a very limited kind of citizenship of co-presence and coexistence, not like a deeply deliberative one. But yet, that is, I think, the key to the concept of solidarity. There's an element of sharing, but there's also an element of shared experience and contact with one another and this sense of um, being connected to one another. And that's one thing that one might say is right now in jeopardy in the time of COVID that we don't have that visceral register of contact with our fellow citizens.
thinking a little bit in terms of scale um, or speciality uh, of your arguments, is there something specific about the urban uh, which allows us to think about the Commonwealth or the Commons? Or, or is this, or could solidarism, could the Commonwealth be thought of uh, at a different scale? Uh, and I suppose the second part of that question is, what might be the links or are there any links to uh, ideas and practices, either contemporary or historical, uh, around municipalism? I think you might mention municipalism in terms of um, an idea about democracy, um, but I was wondering if you could elaborate on that a little bit. That is a fantastic question, and it's one that I've been thinking about a great deal right now as I've sort of fled to the countryside. Um, so first of all, I would say that when I think of the concept of the right to the city, I never thought of it as distinctively urban. The city, I intuitively, I think, understood as the spatialization of a concentration of a couple of things. One would be something like economic productivity. Another would be something like cultural dynamism and vitality. And a third might be something like aesthetic. Uh, also a kind of public infrastructure composed of well, often you know, transit and roads, but also of public parks, of schools, educational institutions, and of libraries. So when I think of all these things coming together as a sort of like nodal point or concentration of essentially like intersubjectivity, when that's made concrete, I guess that's how I thought of the city. So the city doesn't have to be like a big superstar megacity. It's this sort of concentration of like things and people and opportunities. And so I think those ideas can be applied outside of the large sort of marquee cities that you know, we often focus on when we write about things like gentrification, where we might think of New York City or San Francisco in the United States or in Canada, places like Vancouver and Toronto. Uh, so... It can be expanded, you know, beyond like the most dense urban cores. And one of the features I think of my book is a focus on the inner suburbs. I teach at the Scarborough campus of the University of Toronto. And so this is an area that is one of the poor areas of the city. There's a large concentration of recent immigrants, but it's also an incredibly dynamic area in terms of like, you know, cultural life and economic vitality in lots of ways. It's not like some sort of dystopian place, but it is a kind of distinctive place. And so I think it's very important to think about the relationship between these inner suburbs, the kind of value like in, they have in Paris and the central core and to not fall into this kind of, uh, temptation that you see sometimes in urban theory of being kind of um, somewhat judgmental of or dismissive of life on the periphery. In my very first book, Radical Space, which was focused on Italy and was very engaged with these debates in the socialist movement about municipalism and municipalism was also related to the idea of the city as a kind of corporation and uh, site of collective ownership of infrastructure. So despite like a longstanding interest in that topic, I have come to be somewhat ambivalent about this issue because of the scale of urban problems. So there are 
also are scholars who have made very convincing arguments about the importance of regionalism. There is a tendency in some parts of the United States to try and create these very small little jurisdictions so that the wealthy can basically separate off from the problems of the poor and avoid paying for them through taxes, right? This is something that Mike Davis described very vividly and powerfully in City of Courts, one of the all-time great urban books. And so I think that I'm very torn between feeling very enthusiastic about local democracy and decentralization, but also recognizing the scale of urban problems often requires regionalism. And for that reason, in my most recent book, I don't really talk about scale because I'm just not sure about which scale is most appropriate. And that might also uh, vary in different contexts. I guess I could add one little thing in addition to that, because I have um, started a new project on San Francisco or California called What's the Matter with San Francisco? And in the early phases of research on that, I have become like even more convinced of the dangers of something like home rule and of NIMBYism being like a real threat to a kind of spatial justice. Not that I mean to conflate NIMBYism with municipalism, but I'm just concerned that some of these, you know, very well-meaning leftist arguments coming out of the late 1960s about community control have unwittingly provided tools that have led to the exclusion and often the um, limited supply of housing in California. That topic uh, also uh, really interests me. And I just read the final pages of your book in which you also made an argument about uh, the relationship between uh, local justice uh, issues and global justice issues in which you made an argument for, I guess, favoring uh, issues of, of local justice because of their visceral viscerality. Could you elaborate a bit uh, on, on this uh, issue again for me? Sure. So over the years when I was presenting the work in progress that came to be published as this book, the single most frequent objection or critique that I heard was that this would lead to a kind of communitarianism that really prioritized the interests of some sort of, you know, bounded community at the expense of potentially more needy distant others. And that it could also reinforce a mentality of almost a kind of quasi-nationalistic preference for one's fellow citizens over even something like immigrants. And since, you know, I've also written on global justice and on post-colonialism, I'm very concerned with those issues. I took this objection very seriously. Now, the founding figure of solidarism, whose name is Leon Bourgeois, actually won the Nobel Peace Prize for his work defending the global community as an opponent of World War I. So I think that From the standpoint of intellectual history, the Solidarist movement was not in any way attached to a kind of parochial localism. It had a very strong globalist current that, you know, had other normative foundations, perhaps. And so I don't think that, you know, one thing has to follow from the other. You know, that being said, I understand conceptually how saying like, well, we collectively own the city 
and the increase in land values that have been created through our economic activity or our investment in infrastructure, that this could lead to a certain kind of like understanding of outsiders versus insiders. Just to explain a second what I meant by that, um, one of the practical policy consequences that stem from the argument in the book is something like land value capture. This is a concept that's really familiar to planners and you know, is implemented in some places. But the idea is that when the value of real estate increases, that this doesn't necessarily naturally always have to go to the private property owner. It could be captured by the local community, by the state for reinvestment. Essentially, if the value of land increases because of like the quality of the schools or the quality of public transit, then maybe this should go to pay for those things or to pay to provide those things to other places. So um, that, I think, is a very strong, persuasive, and intuitively plausible argument in favor of local taxation that I defend. But some people have said, yeah, it sounds like, well, you know, we should get to keep all of the benefits that and all the value that we've generated here in this local area. And then it doesn't recognize that maybe like rural areas might need things. And so I think that that is something to take seriously. That we can start with this, these local communities, but that we should not limit the scope of this argument to the local scale. One of the things that I also suggest is that solidarist arguments about social property coming from the division of labor could also justify a universal basic income, a UBI. So it doesn't have to just justify investment in material infrastructure in cities. It could also, in theory, justify distributing individual benefits to people who are in need. Because of my interest in urban issues, I focus on the urban side of it, but it is potentially much more far-reaching. I have one curiosity. Um about the history of this uh, solidarism thinking and you described it as an a kind of an obscure thought that has been largely forgotten and that that had its heyday during the belle époque and and then it sort of disappeared it seemed so what actually happened that it disappeared and how Or what could help this kind of thinking today to help it prevail um, and and have a have a greater impact than it had in the past? Well, one of the reasons why it disappeared was that it was successful. So solidarism was an important set of arguments that justified the introduction of an income tax in France and the introduction of the welfare state. And once these were really consolidated, once conservatives no longer objected to an income tax or the welfare state, there wasn't really a need for solidarist arguments. They were kind of assimilated into conventional wisdom. I think that was true in social democratic welfare states also. But then with the kind of rise of neoliberalism, some of these fundamental foundations were really challenged and were weakened. And Over time, I think neoliberalism grew in strength and prominence, and the other side of the debate kind of didn't find its footing. Like on the one hand, there were kind of Rawlsian ideas about equality, but they're kind of abstract. And as much as I actually personally believe that we don't deserve our 
merit in a sense. I mean, like the types of things that we are able to earn because of our intelligence are no more deserved than the thing we earn through hard work. This is a Rawlsian idea, but I think that's kind of counterintuitive to people. And so welfare states then came to be justified as a form of charity, something that the solidarists totally rejected, but came to be kind of the dominant view of the welfare state, at least in the United States. And so um, these ideas then, you know, disappeared, but we need them desperately. We need to kind of better understand these like foundational principles that were so influential in an earlier period. And I find that in applying them to the city, it just makes rhetorical sense to people. So especially if you do live in a real estate market where the price of housing has been increasing and you are a homeowner, if you just point out to somebody like, you know, it doubled in value, but you didn't do anything. Like there was no labor. We intuitively think that like we deserve the fruits of our labor. But when something just increases in value, it seems to to be unearned. And so that's this concept of unearned increment. That's a concept from Ricardo that the solidarists use. And I think like the inflated price of housing is a vivid illustration of that. And so a lot of people then I think would come to understand that there is something legitimate about seeing that under an increment as having partially like a legitimately individual or private share. You know, they feel like I took the mortgage out, I bought it, I took a risk, blah, 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 but also partially a collective share. And so this idea that there's this kind of big value that's partially like yours and partially societies or the public's, that comes to then make sense to people. You see that in the city and you also see how you benefit from that, from the infrastructure that is funded through that. You see that that infrastructure is necessary because we are like so close together. And so that's the story I want to tell that will help people see that our interdependence generates challenges, but also the resources if properly allocated to, um, to solve those challenges. Thank you, Peggy. So let's turn to the current COVID-19 situation. And uh, I'd like to ask you to um, speak about how this moment has challenged your thinking about the urban commonwealth um, or, or how, how it maybe even have confirmed uh, some of the thoughts you had already um, developed? Yes, that is a great question. And on the one hand, I think it's possible to say that there are theories from this book and from the urban literature more generally that are relevant here. So let me start with Parks. So Often when we read back on someone like Frederick Law Olmsted, the designer of Central Park in New York City and some of the other really important urban parks, we kind of, I think, cringe a little bit when we read his ideas about like hygiene and public health, right? He justified the construction of public urban parks as a kind of way of increasing the health and hygiene of the unwashed masses who are concentrated in the tenements and subject to, you know, all sorts of like putrid odors and like diseases. But I think people kind of like tended to gloss over that. But now when we are ourselves exposed to this pandemic, kind of think about those public health arguments from a slightly different perspective. So that raises this question of parks. It was a big controversy in Toronto just this weekend because finally the weather 
became a little bit warmer. And in one particular urban park, there were just crowds and crowds of people who seemed to be violating social distancing. And this suggested that perhaps the opening up of the public spaces was kind of a mistake. And it made me kind of think again a little bit about parks, because if it turns out that it is correct to say that COVID does not spread as quickly outside, and if exposure to sun sometimes makes it you know, less virulent or less likely to travel from person to person, then it does seem like you know, outdoors and public parks are exactly the place where people should be concentrating. Now, I'm not suggesting people violate social distancing or like the six foot rule, but it does potentially suggest like a strong argument for more generous provision of green space and public parks. So maybe the problem isn't that all these people are big selfish jerks who, you know, don't care about, you know, elderly people and the spread of the disease, but that we as a society have not adequately invested in green space and park infrastructure, that the problem is that we don't have enough parks and people were crowded together because there just wasn't enough space. So I think there's kind of, you know, a possibility of revisiting some of these, you know, original arguments that parks are not just like these kind of extra amenities that they're sort of unnecessary, but instead they do play this fundamental role of allowing people to be who we are as human, which are social people in this environment that is maybe like better suited to social interaction. So that's the first uh, thought that I've had that what we need is more parks. That sounds like you had a second thought too. <laughs> okay. Well, I say on the flip side of it, so another theme of my book was the importance of public transit. And I don't think, you know, that really changes in any way. But certainly right now when it seems possible and likely that COVID has spread particularly quickly in crowded indoor places like the subway. People are really worried about using public transit. And it does make me think a little bit about what are the implications of this? Might there be some sort of shift away from public transit as it is public transit is not like widely used or widely available in the United States with the exception of a few densely populated cities like San Francisco and New York City and Toronto also. So will this then kind of weaken this kind of already fairly weak public consensus in favor of the need to invest in public transit as a kind of really important mechanism for ensuring the right to the city, right? If some people living in inner suburbs are not ever going to be able to afford a house in the central city, then at least like a high quality public transit infrastructure provides a way of like circulating to take advantage of some of its opportunities. So this seems to threaten that in some ways. And one alternative might be increased investment in bike infrastructure. So that seems to be a alternative form of transportation to the car that, you know, has all sorts of benefits like exercise and, you know, preventing the emission of greenhouse gases. And it also is naturally socially distancing. There's all these like advantages, but let's face it. Like I live in Toronto. It's incredibly cold for most of the year. There's like ice and snow on the ground for at least four months. So even people who 
are in relatively good health and physically fit, are maybe not able to use that mode of transportation effectively the whole time. So I do think that like this COVID epidemic has opened up a conversation about like how we want to use streets and roads. There's been a debate in Toronto about whether to close some streets to cars so that there's more room for pedestrians to circulate in public space and socially distance at the same time. And so I think that has kind of forced like a sort of reset to debates about um, about bike lanes and about like pedestrian safety and accessibility. And hopefully something good could emerge out of this debate and out of the renewed attention to it. But I do think that there are also, you know, risks that there will be a long-term decrease in the use of public transit, even after hopefully a vaccine is uh, widely available because of people's fears and their sort of associations of public transit with contagion. And that will lead to more cars on the road, more congestion, more greenhouse gas emissions. And, and that'll be something that may be coming down the line. Thinking a, a little bit about uh, looking forward and um, uh, of course it's, very very turbulent uh, period, and um, it would be wrong to try and make too many predictions. But you're thinking about uh, your reflecting on your body of work. Um, what prospects do we see for um, f- greater solidarities, or, or, or this idea of the urban commonwealth or urban society? Um, thinking perhaps particularly in relation to the state. Uh, you know, in lots of uh, nations, we seem to. Uh, have this sense, uh, this strong sense that the, the state is is back and is dominant, uh, uh, guiding us, telling us what to do, enforcing rules. Um, what kind of, how have you thought about that in terms of uh, uh, some of the work that you've that you've done? So I was teaching a new class this term called writing about politics, and I designed the syllabus before I thought at all about COVID, and I included an article by the writer Rebecca Solnit called The Uses of Disaster. And it ended up being very timely because it happened to be on the syllabus more or less the week that like the crisis exploded. And one of the key lines in that piece is everybody has their favorite disaster. And she was, I think, implicitly writing about Katrina in New Orleans, but focused on like the 1906 earthquake in San Francisco and also um, earthquake in Mexico City. And really talked about the enormous outpouring of volunteerism and community solidarity that seemed to sort of like spring up like mushrooms, right, without any kind of like organization from above. And I found this piece to be so thought-provoking. And one of the things that she said, the reason why, despite like the suffering and disaster, that people do often remember it, in a sense, fondly, that people have their favorite disaster, is because normal, secular, selfish time is suspended and you focus outside of yourself and you connect with people in your community and you do things that you think have more value and are more important. And so I've been really always coming back to this and asking myself, is that even true in this kind of crisis, in this kind of disaster, one that demands of us not coming together in order to like sift through the rubble and move concrete blocks to free people, but instead to stay in our homes? And I think the answer here is like yes and no. On the one hand, there absolutely has been this kind of like grassroots solidarity, you know, people contacting 
their neighbors to see if those neighbors needed help or grocery delivery and helping elderly people and offering to look out for one another, especially in like physical locations in neighborhoods. So that I think has been like very distinctive and very real. But at the same time, like one of the things that this, that the theory of solidarism emphasized is that there's this abstract interdependence, but we have to come to experience it and recognize it and value it. And that was one of the reasons that the solidarists really embraced and defended and supported public schools because they thought in the schools, we really feel ourselves as like equal and working together and connected with one another. So post-COVID, we've had much less of that, right? We've had no schools, we've had no universities, we've had like, you know, such limited interactions with one another that we've had this kind of solidarity, but we've also had this like intense isolation and separation. And importantly, we've also, I think, had the development of technologies that will make that kind of separateness more possible in the future. I think more people will work from home after this. I think there will be more online classes, at least at large public universities. And so there will be these kind of like shifts that lead to less of these experiences where we have face-to-face contact with one another. So it's kind of this like ambivalence right now, because on the one hand, people are absolutely recognizing how much they value those face-to-face connections, right? I mean, my kids are saying how much they miss school and, you know, that they don't want to do online education because it just doesn't make sense and it just doesn't work. But I think that there is this kind of value of the kinds of face-to-face experiences that we've lost, but simultaneously there's just this like structure that will make it easier for it to extend into, into the future. So I think as far as like solidarity, I think on the one hand, it has been um, very exciting to see such strong solidaristic responses. On the other hand, I do wonder whether some seeds are being planted for things that in the future will weaken solidaristic ties. I do realize though that in your last question, there was something I didn't answer and that was about the role of the state in particular. Because one thing in Rebecca Solnit's piece, The Uses of Disaster, she really juxtaposes the inaction on the part of the state, in the case of, let's say, the earthquake in Mexico in particular, and the incredibly intensive engagement of everyday people and helping others in need who are around them. I tend to think that I have not seen it in such black and white terms. I think that uh, the public health administration or I guess bureaucracy or maybe leadership is a better term to use has, you know, had a really important role to play in sharing research and informing people about, you know, how we should react to and understand this unprecedented situation And certainly, like, government leaders have responded in really different ways. I don't think you can totally, like, generalize across North America. I think the response in, you know, Canada has been different than the response in the United States. But um, ultimately, I think that we need to really have a very responsible and responsive state in order to deal with this crisis. I don't think it's something that can be addressed purely at the grassroots level.
And I guess another dimension to that, in addition to a kind of growing recognition of inequalities and how they affect um, vulnerability to disease, I should point to the way Canada has moved very quickly in order to essentially provide for four months a guaranteed basic income to all people to try and eliminate some of the bureaucratic hurdles that prevent people from accessing the resources they need to survive. And that has also stimulated a conversation about maybe a more general basic income in the future. So hopefully out of this crisis, there could be like solidaristic responses that emerge. So given that situation that you described and the the ambivalence uh, in it, how do you conceive of the role of theorists, urban scholars in these times then? Well, first I'll talk about scholars more generally. I do want to emphasize the huge contribution that I think empirical demographic research has made on understanding the inequality in the, that has been the experience of COVID. So at first there was this kind of story that we're all in this together and the implication being that we all are equally vulnerable. And I think it's been made clear by these scholars that that is not the case. Leaving aside the elderly, which I think we always knew, we now know that the disease has hit poor people, it has hit immigrants and black and brown people disproportionately. And so I think that that knowledge, you know, is the important foundation of trying to think then normatively and critically about those injustices and what we can do about them. The hopeful side of me thinks that people have like seen this and acknowledged this and have also like started to recognize the contributions of like frontline workers, of service workers who were maybe sometimes taken for granted or ignored or not given the respect and recognition they deserve. So all of a sudden there's some discussion about, you know, how we should value this type of work differently. And so I think that the next step is to develop these normative arguments about social justice in more depth and hopefully ensure that they enter into part of the conversation. That's why I think it's so great to have, you know, these podcasts that connect, you know, scholars and, you know, interested people more broadly in collective conversations with one another. So I think, you know, scholars can hopefully play some role there. Great. Um, I, th I think you already gave uh, a, a good demonstration of what a political theorist um, <laughs> should do in, in this context. Um, uh, I'd, I thought that was brilliant. I don't have any more questions. I don't know, Marcus, uh, do you, is there anything you want to add? Thank you very much, uh, Peggy. Thanks to you for listening. For more information, visit our website, urbanpolitical.podigy.io. Please subscribe and follow us on Twitter.